Well, good morning. It's another good one. It's another good one. We keep rolling through August in these crazy, beautiful days. Um, I don't know. We'll just ride it as long as uh, he keeps giving them to us. I, I really do hope you're having a good day. I'm just going to tell you up front I'm having a good day. It's a good day for me. Um, this might seem like a little selfish at first, but it'll, you'll realize it's not in a minute. Um, today is a good day for me because 29 years ago today, I bribed my wife to marry me. And, uh, yeah. And so, uh, just, I, I'm, I'm serious about for the last 35 years to be, um, the blessing to be connected to her soul um, and all that we've seen God do together, just, just good stuff um, in my life. I am grateful, um, so crazy grateful. So um, today, um, we are about to make an announcement, not me and her, but I'm about to make an announcement um, because we kicked off a, a new contest this week. Anybody know about the contest? Nobody knows the contest. Anybody know about the contest? What is it? It's a selfie contest, all right? Anybody hear about the selfie contest? Few people hear about the selfie contest? Now, everybody's heard about it this week so that you can jump in on next week, but the, the picture is we, w we want you to send in your best selfie. Send in your best selfie from the week, all right? Don't forget that your family and Jesus are gonna see it, but send in your best selfie, all right? And every week, we're, we're announcing a winner. So today's winner is, drum roll, there you go. There it is, there it is. So Mr. Hassenjaeger wins the selfie this week. 25 bucks, cash, money. Um, I'm curious to see what cut Tucker gets out of the deal, because he's obviously a part of that, so we'll see how they... We'll see how they work all that out, all right? So he's in, he, he wins the first week. Um, it's time for week two. Send them in, all right? Send them in. We'll pick another winner next week, then we're going to pick a third winner, and then we'll put all three winners together, and then you guys will, will kind of vote and decide um, who the grand prize winner is, all right? You know, when I was growing up, um, if you met someone famous, and for me, that would have been... Uh, an athlete, because I wouldn't have cared much about a singer or an actor or whatever. For me, it would have been to meet, you know, certain athletes. When, when you met an athlete, the cool thing to do was to get an autograph, right? To get an autograph. But the funny thing about that is later when you're like showing people, hey, I got, I got the autograph, and they look at you like, sure you did, right? Because it's sort of like, well, prove it. Right? How do we know that your uncle didn't sign that deal? Right? So you could get the autograph, but you, you really couldn't prove that you actually met the person. Now we live in a day where we don't need signatures anymore. Right? Whoever you meet, you just snap. Right? You got a camera or a phone with cameras on both sides, right? So, I mean, you, you just snap the picture. Now we have the selfie. And selfies are everywhere. Now, I want to make it clear. Um, 
obviously we want to have some fun with this, and I don't believe that there's anything inherently bad about the selfie, okay? That's why we're having some fun with it. But what we want to deal with in this series is what happens when you start to live a selfie life. What happens when your life becomes a selfie? And I'm telling you, what happens is it gets ugly. It gets ugly. You ever seen somebody taking a selfie when they're at some, uh, maybe it's a landmark, right, that, that a really special, famous landmark, or maybe it's like a beautiful sunset, or right, maybe it's a mountain or a lake or whatever it is, wherever they're at, and they're going to take the selfie, right, and so they, they right, you kind of, you kind of line up the selfie, and then, but then it becomes, right, to where by the time the selfie's taken, there's really no question in your mind which is the bigger deal to them in the picture, the thing behind them or themselves. And so much of the time, it becomes about what's at the front, right? And I'm saying that when that happens in life, things get ugly. In its worst case, I'm talking about something that causes us to live in the need to always be right. In the worst case, I'm talking about something that keeps us from saying, I'm sorry, even when we know we're wrong. I'm talking about something that fuels our lack of contentment. There's always got to be more. Something that feeds our, our lack of self-awareness. Something that feeds our addiction for the next attaboy or that a girl. Something that turns our discussions into argument. Something that fuels our great need to be liked, the, the need to be respected. It leads us to live self-absorption. It leads us just to be selfish. And your desire to pull people in actually ends up pushing people away. And with this thing, it doesn't just push people away. It pushes God away. Because what we're talking about in this series is pride. Pride. Now, I'm not talking about the good kind of pride. You're like, there's a good kind of pride? Yeah, there's a good kind of pride. I'm talking about like, I'm not talking about the good kind of pride that says I am proud of my kids. That, that's nothing wrong with that. I'm proud of my kids. I'm, I'm proud of the way that, right, they, they, they really, I think, heart-wise seek to follow Jesus, the way, right, whatever it is. It's like I'm proud of my kids. Or, or maybe despite at times what happens across this country that we live in, you would say, I'm proud of my country. We, we admit our faults and our struggles, but I'm proud of my country. I'm saying that's good pride because what's in the spotlight of that pride? They are. You're proud of your kids. You're proud of your country. That pride centers on someone else. But the kind of pride that we're dealing with in this series is the kind of pride that is destructive. It is the kind of pride that God detests. It's the kind of pride that puts me in the spotlight. 
It puts me in the center of the selfie. And so we're going to talk about that in the next several weeks in a talk series called Me, My Selfie, and I. That's what we're going to tackle. Me, my selfie, and I. King David said it this way in Psalm chapter 10. He said, in his pride, a wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. He says, when a person is prideful, Right? When, when they are the center of, of the, the, the picture, it's as if God doesn't even exist. They can't even see God because when you look at the picture of their life, they are what takes up the entire frame. They occupy the entire photo so that you don't even see God. There is no room for him in the prideful person's heart. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. C.S. Lewis had an amazing way with words. But man, he is so on track. I don't know of anything more dangerous to talk to you about than pride. I don't know anything more dangerous in our lives to deal with than pride. I want you to think about it today as a, what I'm going to call, you you know what when we say a two-way mirror? Like, you know like when you're watching the detective shows or cop shows or whatever and, and someone is being interrogated, they're being questioned and they put them in the room, right? And in the room, they see a mirror, right? When they, when they look at the mirror, they see the room that they're in. But right what, what, on the other side of the mirror, right? That's where people are standing. And people can see right through. And I want you to begin to see that that's what pride is like. When you and I are prideful, all we see when we look into the mirror is ourself. But I'm telling you, there are people who from the other side can see right through us. Pride is easy to spot in somebody else. It's difficult to see in yourself which means you may have many more victims of your pride than you realize. This is worth going after. So let's do it. We're going to be in the book of Daniel, all right? So if you got your Bible and you want to find Daniel, it's worth finding because, I mean, it's worth finding even if today's the only day, but it's worth finding because we're going to be there for several weeks. Book of Daniel. I'm going to give you a minute to find it because it's kind of hard to find. It's one of those that's way up in the middle. It's in the Old Testament, which means the first part of your Bible, but it's past Psalms. And that's always that like territory where nobody can figure out where anything is, right? So Psalms, and then you got to travel away. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. All right, so it's right in the middle of all that. 
I, I want you to find Daniel. There's enough chapters that eventually you ought to be able to, to, uh, to land there. We're going to look at really several kings in the book of Daniel. There are multiple kings who show up in Daniel's story, and we're really going to zero in on those kings over the next at least three weeks. And out of those kings, I really believe God can teach us some things about pride. The first king that we're going to look at, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. That's a lot of letters, isn't it? 14, that's worse than Thunderbird, right? Nebuchadnezzar, that's his name. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, during Daniel's day, was the king of Babylon. All right, so think Babylon, think Iraq. All right, so we, we can, we can kind of get our territory down. Here's what's been happening for years and years and years. God's people have basically been saying to God, God, thanks for your help, but we got it on this one. God, thanks for your direction, but we, know, we think we know what's best in this, in this circumstance. God, th- thank you for providing for us, but uh, we're going to do it our way. Thank you, God, but. Thank you, God, but. And so for a while now, for years, this has been taking place. So here's what happens. God uses Nebuchadnezzar, this foreign king, the king of Babylon, who does not know or worship God. And God uses Nebuchadnezzar to put God's people in a massive timeout. God's like, enough's enough. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar would conquer a land, he wouldn't just take slaves. Nebuchadnezzar would find the young best of the best. And he would use them in his service. So he would kidnap these teenagers, basically, and he would march them to Babylon. Now, in Daniel, we get four of them. One of them, as you can imagine, is Daniel, all right? We're given Daniel's name. Then there's another three, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are the four that we are given. Now, what would happen is he marches them to Babylon. They are given new haircuts, new clothes, new language, new names, everything new because Nebuchadnezzar wants them to become Babylonian. And so they get new names that might be what you actually recognize the other three by more, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their names. Over and over, these four stand faithful. Whatever King Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do, in, in part they will do, but they will never, they will never forsake their faithfulness to God. So whether it's in the food that they eat or whether it is to the challenge to, to bow down to idols, they stay faithful to God. They excel in the process to the point that they are given more responsibility by the, by the king's service. But it gets to the point where Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue that he wants everybody to worship. But Rakshak and Benny say, no. 
no, we're not going to bow down. And so they, they, they use this most incredible line of faith that goes something like this. Our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. Now, the threat was they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? That's that story that you, you've heard. They're, they're thrown into, this, into a furnace that's heated so hot, and then people are just thrown in to be killed. That was the, that was the threat. And they basically say, we're not going to bow down. Our God can save us, but I love the rest of the statement. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. Now, I think that's one of those beautiful places in the Bible that you can teach people what real faith looks like. Because too many times, guilt is actually what's taught instead of faith. Because the way people are taught faith is, if you believe enough, then God will always come through. Which means do what you want. If you will believe enough, if you will just have enough faith, then God will always heal. If you just have enough faith, then, then you will always be delivered. They know that's not the truth about faith. Faith is our God is always able, and sometimes he chooses to rescue from the flames, and sometimes he doesn't. Now, you understand, if we could just get the big picture, to go through the flames actually ends up being the greater blessing because of where you end up with him for all of eternity, but that's not how we see it because we're very temporal. But these guys know it. They're like, our God can save us if he wants to. But even if he chooses not to in this moment, we ain't bowing down to anybody else. Well, God did it this time. So much so that he literally shows up in the furnace with them. Nebuchadnezzar can, can, can see there's a fourth in the furnace. The three guys are removed from the furnace, and it says not only were they not burned, but they didn't even smell like smoke. 25 years pass. 25 years pass. And we arrive at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. Check this out. Chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. That's a scary line for me because I see a whole lot of people around me. That's their goal in life. I want to be in my palace, contented and prosperous. Nebuchadnezzar had it. I had a dream that made me afraid. <clears throat> As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. This was the dream. The dream was about this giant tree, a tree so big that everybody, the whole world could see. But a voice said, chop down the tree and only leave the stump. Like, okay, well, who's the voice? Look at verse 17. Daniel answers, here's who the voice is. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most 
high, is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Nebuchadnezzar, you are a king, but you are not the king. And this is not a dream about your enemies, man. This is a dream about you. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Ooh, this isn't good. And Nebuchadnezzar, this is about your arrogance. Verse 36, or 26, I'm sorry, verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. I love that phrase. It'll be restored. That's the stump, man. It'll be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Daniel in the big picture is going, Nebuchadnezzar, man, you got to repent. You got to turn to the king, not you. You got to turn to the king, but over time, Nebuchadnezzar loses sight of all this. Verse 29, 12 months later. You ever notice that God is way more patient than you are? It's like when he finally does usually take action, there's been so much warning. There's been so much warning. 12 months later. The king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, is not this the great Babylon me, myself, and selfie, and I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, come on. You don't know Nebuchadnezzar personally, right? He lived a long time ago. You got no connection to him. But aren't you standing on the other side of the mirror going, dude, this ain't good. Aren't you standing on the other side of the mirror going, shh, stop it. He's going, look at what I've done. Look at how amazing I am. Look at this place. How do you think this got here? Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Okay, if it's been taken, what does that mean? It had been given. Nebuchadnezzar, this, this doesn't belong to you, man. This was given to you. This is a stewardship issue. You are simply, you are simply enjoying what has been handed to you, the authority is held by someone else. Verse 32, 
You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Wow. Look, it's a selfie from the pasture. And what's that hanging out of Neb's mouth? Grass. Grass. You're like, man, that's crazy stuff. Do you really think that happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, I would submit to you that there is actually a, a word, a term that is even used in our day. Um, it, it is a term, um, boanthropy. You look it up, boanthropy. It is actually a title given for a specific mental illness where people believe themselves to be an ox or a cow and they live that way. No joke. A mental illness where literally you, you, you it's like, hey, hey, hey where, where's Jeff? Oh, he's, he's, he's out back eating grass because he thinks he's a cow. Seriously. Nebuchadnezzar, choose humility or it will be chosen for you. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Don't you just want to go, Neb, why didn't you do that before? And I think his answer would be, well, I didn't know what grass tastes like. Do now. It required him hitting the bottom. To be reminded that he's not in control. And for him to begin to declare it's his dominion, it's his kingdom. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Watch. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar, can you testify? I'm saying, come on, how about we together say, you know what, let's take a look inward. I mean, this is dangerous stuff to miss. So, so let's, let's take a look inward. 
And let's be willing to ask ourselves some questions and let's be willing to answer some questions because the truth of the matter is we all, 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 all have a tendency to do the same. We all have the tendency. When it comes to this fight against pride, we, we, we all have the wrestling match with this. Wait, now, we, we've seen big pictures of it at times, even in our culture. I mean, think about, you know, 2007, 2008, that range in our country, right? You got people making lots of money, people who are very successful in terms of business, and the bottom falls out. And for a lot of people, it was a time when God chose to remind us who's in control. And you really can find yourself in a place where the only thing you can do is reach up. But once you go through that, your perspective is different. And now, you, you, if God chose to take it all away again, you would say my response is different because I see God different. It's always been his kingdom and it's always been his rule. So, let's ask some questions. Looking in the mirror, all right? We're looking in the mirror. And the question we ask is, who do you see staring back at you? It's like, when I look in the mirror, can I see my pride? Can I see it? Have I even taken a look in a while? Because I'm just telling you, if you don't look there often, it will sneak up on you because our tendency is to go there. you got to often look in the mirror and ask the question, have I thought about this lately in regards to my pride? Because I'm telling you, if you don't see it, there really are other people who see it. There are other people who are looking through to see it. Maybe it's your spouse and they're going, oh, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Or it's a friend who's looking in and going, yeah, I, I, I can see it. Which leads us to the second question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? All right? I, I want to look in the mirror and go, is there pride? Where is there pride? Where does this need to be dealt with? And then the question is, what's it like to be on the other side of me? I'm seeing my reflection, but there are other people who can see right through it. If you've got people in your life, and I don't mean it has to be a huge number of people, but you've got a few people in your life who you trust. People who will speak honestly to you. Not people that you trust because they'll tell you what you want, but people that you trust because they'll tell you honestly what they see, right? Now, you may have to ask several times, hey, what do you see in me? You may have to ask it several times because maybe there have been some times before when you sort of asked the question and they sort of gave you an answer and you sort of shot back at them. They're like, I thought you asked me. And so this may take a little bit of trust building to go, no, really. I know I even might push back in the beginning, but, but what do you see? And we don't want to live thinking that we're looking at an accurate reflection when we're really not. Let me give you an example of this. I think some of us really struggle with the tendency to strive for what, for what I call the attaboy, the girl. And we so struggle with the tendency 
Instead of trusting in what God has already declared over us, what does he declare over you? You are wonderfully made. What does he declare over you? You are completely loved. What does he declare over you? You are extraordinarily gifted by his his spirit. What does he declare over you? You are forgiven. But instead of resting in what he has declared over us, we have this tendency that we need to hear the, the attaboy. We, we need to hear girl, right? It's almost the, okay, maybe God likes me, but do you? Maybe God likes me, but do you? See, you can see hints of this. Pride, for example, won't let you say no to anything. Because you constantly need to be needed. And therefore, you can't say no to anything because uh, you, you have the need to do and to be, to be recognized. Pride, pride feels a thrill when people of power acknowledge. It feels a thrill. Pride needs the right car, it needs the right house, it needs the right title, because it needs the approval of people. Pride obsesses over having friendships. Pride obsesses over maybe being married or, or fantasizing about a better one because pride desires being adored. And if I'm not adored, then it's pride, man. It's pride. The moment I think I've beat it, it's back. Have you noticed that about pride? It's like the moment you think, you're like, okay, I got that part under. It's like, no, it's back. It'll constantly be the fight in this life. It will. And maybe for you, I mean, it comes out in this need for control, or maybe it comes out in this need for power, whether it's in your office or on a team or in your family or wherever that is. But that eventually develops into an entitlement that goes, you know what? I deserve this. You know, this is, this is what I deserve. I deserve to be recognized. I, I deserve to be appreciated. And then I deserve more. And suddenly, you're living a life that cannot recognize how crazy blessed we are going, man, I've been given this friendships, and I've been given this kind of care, and I've been given this kind of love because I'm constantly going, well, I, I deserve more. I deserve more. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Here's the third question. What's your favorite filter? What's your favorite filter? Um, in the selfie world, I mean, filters are crazy, isn't it? I mean, what you can do, right, with a picture now, right? So you, you, you're snapping, right, you snap the selfie, and, and you're looking, and it's like, oh, Man, if, if ever there was a, a sepia, this, this is it, right? So you, you go for the sepia, you go for whatever it is that you're going to filter, right? You, you filter your pictures. Like, oh, that makes my hair look good, right? That one, I don't have that one. I, I, I can't find that, that filter. I keep trying, but it doesn't work, right? But, but you're like, oh that, that, oh, that makes me look good, right? You antique it, whatever. The, well, I don't know. You just you keep trying the filters to make it look, right? And somebody then sees your picture that you send out, and they're like, oh, I love that dress. And you're like, well, 
That's good because it's not really that color. Because you filtered it. Right? How often do we rationalize our pride through something else? Sometimes we rationalize our pride with things like confidence. Right? I'm not prideful. I'm just confident. No. Confidence isn't a jerk. Confidence is not an, an, an arrogance. No, it's pride, right? Confidence is good, but let's be careful that we're not just filtering, right? Or maybe the filter is excellence. You ever heard somebody? It's like, well, I'm, I'm just about excellence. Lots of times it's pride. Here's how it looks. Oh, I would never live there. I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that. I don't think I could work there. Oh, I, I wouldn't go to school there. I would never do that. Even a moral elitism that looks at somebody's life and sees a decision that they make and it's sort of like the I could do better, or I would never sin like that. That's pride. It's pride. It's just a filter that we use. Or sometimes the filter can be false humility. You know what that looks like? False humility. False humility goes, no one likes me, and I'm never going to have that. Now, here's my question. Who's at the center of that picture? Me. Me. Just like arrogance. I'm still the center of the picture. It's just false humility. It's just a different filter in order to make it not look like pride. It's really pride. And all that leaves you in such a fear of failure. All that leaves you with such a deep insecurity. We need to ask the question, what's the filter that we often use? And then here's the last question, and it really is the one that can change everything. Will you allow God to break that mirror? Just let him break it. God, break it. Would, would you break, God, this I, I, that I'm not so easily offended and that, and that I'm not always defensive? God, would you break it so that I can have relationships, that, that there are conversations that don't always have to end in arguments. God, would you break it so that I don't, I don't push people away with my, my need to always be right. I think so often our, our pridefulness is connected to a desire that we have to be happy Right? So we kind of have to show ourselves to look good. We have to sometimes push other people down so that, so that we can be, you know, the one who, who's on top so that we can be happy. Listen to this verse from Isaiah chapter 29. This is what Isaiah says in verse 19. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, when is, there, when is the joy most complete? It's when I recognize my need for him, not when I'm constantly trying to earn this, not when I am constantly trying to prove that I'm worth something. It's when I don't have to make myself look good because I believe what God the Father has spoken over who I am. 
And God, I want to be secure in who you say I am. And that doesn't change with circumstances. And so when all the circumstances are great, there can be joy because this is how he sees me and this is how he loves me. And when the whole world feels like it's crashing in, there can be joy because this is how he sees me and this is how he loves me. The Apostle Paul knew that we would struggle with this. And so he told the believers in Philippi these words. Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament, verse 3, reads like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he is God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How beautiful a picture it is when people make much of each other Knowing that anybody you look at has their failures. Knowing that anybody you look at has their faults. You can pick any of us in the room and we got our list. We, we got weaknesses. We got struggles. But when a, when a group of people together begin to highlight and encourage one another based on what they see God doing good in each other's lives, then you realize when people do that for each other, you don't have to do it for yourself. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? It's like when we do it for each other, then we don't have to all be clamoring to prove that, that we got some worth. There's just power in that encouragement. And he's saying, if anybody has the right to say it's about me, it's Jesus. If anybody has the right, why? Because when you look around you today at everything that was created, he spoke it into existence, Colossians says. And he holds it all together. If it was ever about somebody, it's about Jesus. But he bends the knee to the Father. And he chooses to serve. He chooses to die. He chooses a cross. Because he serves you and me. And he chose to be a savior. Now, come on, when you look at pride and then you look at Jesus, I mean, I don't want to devote my life to striving for something that's going to end up killing me. That's what pride does. When I can rest in the love of the one who died for me, that's Jesus. And he makes me alive. Let me tell you how dangerous this stuff is. Pride will make me preach a sermon on pride and only think about the people who really need to hear it. Pride will make you listen to a sermon on pride and only think about the people who really need to hear it. 
pride, does things like cower in the jokes about the inadequacies of a spouse. And you go, oh, it's just, uh, we're just having fun. We're just, just a little fun, just, just a few, it's just a little shot at her. No, it's pride, man. There's pride. There's, there's, some, there's some need for you to push her down so that, so that you feel better about yourself. That's pride. Pride can lurk in strange places like prayer. <laughs> Lord, do you know how irritating they are? It's pride, man. It's pride. Pride will fight for the sins that affect how others see us but it will ignore the sins that no one sees. That's pride. Isn't that wild? It's like, oh, I'm going to deal with that sin. Why? Because if somebody found out, then it would affect how they see me. But I'm just going to sleep through the sin that I think I've got covered and that nobody will see. It's pride. It's pride. I don't want to devote my life to something that'll kill me when I can rest in the love of the one who died for me. I believe this series, as, as awful of a topic as pride is, how, how much of a blessing this could be because you don't have to hit rock bottom. You don't have to hit rock bottom to see it. We can dive into God's word and see the truth of what he's telling us and he's saying, look in the mirror, man. You don't, you don't have to learn this flat on your back. You can learn this looking into the mirror of his word, asking the right questions. And when we confess, war is waged on pride. And you're like, Jeff, just you talking today, man, I can see so much of this stuff that I know there's pride in my, in my life. I know I wrestle with this all the time and it scares me to death. I'm saying, uh, good. I think there's a good part of it that scares you, but I'm telling you, when you run to Jesus with that and we honestly confess, here's my struggle as I'm looking in the mirror, Jesus, I'm asking you to help me. You are waging war on pride and pride is no match for Jesus. But be aware. Pride will confess sin before God but then walk away not very confident about being forgiven. It's like, well, I'm really struggling with pride. It's like, well, did you, did you talk to God about that? Yes. Were you honest with him about that? Yes. But I, I just don't know. I just don't know. Now, isn't it funny? Because when you hear that, you stand before God, you confess your sin, but you walk away not being confident. That sounds like humility. It's like, well, I, I'm just trying to see myself as I really am. No, it's pride. Because what we're actually saying in that moment is, I'm confessing my sin to God, but I'm not really confident about forgiveness because I think my sin is bigger than his grace. It's pride. I think what I've done wrong 
is too big for God to forgive. No, that's pride. That's like taking the selfie, but all you can see in the picture is you. But if you will bend your knee to the one that you know forgives sin, when you bend your knee, you will see in the background a cross. And what he did on that cross is bigger than all your sin. What he did on that cross, it is bigger even than the pride that we may wrestle with. We bow the knee and we surrender. And I'm telling you, if God's people begin to confess their pride before him. Now, come on. This should not, like, we all got it. This, this, is, this is not like some, oh, what percentage of us? No, we all wrestle with it. We all wrestle with it. And when you think you got it beat, I'm telling you, it's back. It's back. And so this is a, but when God's people confess, supernatural stuff happens. Supernatural stuff happens. Let's bow before him. And let's see what God does when he forgives and he frees and he loves. God, I'm asking you to help us as we march through this series. God, I, I know there is a blindness that comes from an enemy. God, our pride can lead us to a place, God, that all we see is ourselves and we don't see you. God, David said it a long time ago. God, I'm asking you to help us to be honest today. I'm asking that by your spirit, you would help us to really look into the mirror. God, help us to ask the question about, God, what it's like to be on the other side. God, help us to, to evaluate those filters that, that some of us have been using as excuses. But then, God, give us faith to ask you to break it. And, God, I'm asking starting today. God, I, I, don't, I don't even want us to have to wait till next week or the week after. God, there, there's so much freedom and so much healing God, for so many of us in this room, that if we are honest with you today and we begin to confess those things to you today, God, there, <laughs> there is a healing in that surrender. There is a forgiveness in that surrender. There is a freedom in that surrender. God, today, may we surrender. God, may the picture of our life May it be engulfed by a cross. I thank you for what you're going to do. God, do it today. In the name of Jesus.